the Auditor General has done a good job. He's done a good job in getting to the bottom of things. He's done a very line-by-line, in-depth audit. We're looking forward to the report, and we really look at it as a watershed moment. Well, that was the Speaker of the Senate, Leo Housakis, last week. wonder if he still thinks the Auditor General's inspection of Senate expenses was done well, seeing as he's on the list of those with questionable expenses. But he's hardly alone. This horror story just keeps on growing. Andrew, Chantel and Bruce are all here tonight. What should we make of the latest direction the Senate story is taking? <laughs> well, every time you think they've plumbed new depths of disgrace, they find newer depths to go to. I mean, the original behavior was, I think we're going to find, pretty disgraceful. The weeks, if not months, of preemptive spinning of the Auditor General's report was pretty disgraceful. The leaking of the report is pretty disgraceful. This is an audit, after all. And now we find, yeah, that not only were uh, 30 of these senators some or all of them, sitting in judgment of Pamela Wallen, Mike Duffy, and Mac Harb, and Mac Patrick Brazo. Uh, but, you know, a good chunk of them were themselves had their own things to answer to. We'll see exactly what, who, who did what. And this particular thing of the three Senate leaders shoving aside three other senators to take charge of the committee, liaising with the Auditor General just in time to be able to arrange that uh, senators should have some court of last appeal, if you will, on their, on their mm. things. It just looks so, so bad, it's hard to find new words for it. I mean, if you were a senator that has, has a clean record, you would probably by now feel that you're sitting on the deck of the Titanic uh, with the drunken people from the bar in charge because it's hard to fathom if you're one of those people that the Senate leadership, including the newly appointed Speaker of the Senate, we should say that uh, Senator Usakos was just appointed by mm -hmm. the Prime Minister, I think most of us, when we found out about the appointment, concluded that he was clean, that he wouldn't be named in the report. Uh, and the people in charge of them are the people who have actually managed to give themselves a court of appeal that weren't granted to others. So either somebody has a death wish for the Senate politically and has put all these people in, on the front line to sink it, or else no one's managing the Senate again. That's an interesting conspiracy theory, though. Uh, I, I, I'm more of the no one's managing the place <laughs> <laughs> school, okay. frankly. Bruce, should these people still be in their positions? I don't think we know enough to say that. I, I think that there won't be much patience for explanations. I think that's fair to say. But I do think we owe it to, uh, you know, this important discussion, I guess, about the role of the Senate, which I think is going to escalate in the weeks ahead to be careful not to overreact to some of the things that the Auditor General has uncovered. I don't mean to start by sounding like I'm excusing the behavior, and I agree that the management of the reputation of the Senate by the senators who are there has been woeful, including the arguments that they've been making at the Duffy trial through their lawyers to prevent the public from seeing documents that might have some ability to exonerate some of them anyway. So I think this is going to change the political dynamic about the Senate as a, as a potential electoral issue. Uh, right now, the NDP is the only party that says we'll abolish it. There's no idea how they will do that. But I think the other parties might want to look at whether or not they're, no, 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 you can't abolish the Senate. You have to live with it as is. That's not going to be very politically sexy for candidates for those two parties, if that's the position that they stick with. Well, sexy is one thing and doable is another. And abolition, frankly, I don't uh, believe is doable when Ontario and Quebec believe that there should be a Senate. Uh, it is a constitutional discussion that requires unanimity. I don't see my way around that on that basis. 
uh, Justin Trudeau's solution of taking the senators out of his caucus and appointing senators that are not tied to parties might be a solution. But at this juncture, I'd, I think it doesn't matter who's saying what about Senate reform. The real question is someone is prime minister uh, and responsible for the Senate. Stephen Harper has not been appointing senators, but he has not told people how going forward this would work. And after next week, it's going to be quite pressing for him to come up with some answer. And there's lots that the Senate could do to reform itself in terms of its standing orders. And if the prime minister gave the word, it could happen tomorrow in terms of transparency, in terms of accountability, in terms also of their ability to, to vote down bills by the House of Commons that have been passed by 260 to 17 margins in the Commons. Mm. So maybe that's where the, the, the locus shifts now is, is Senate heal thyself. All right. Well, just on today's story, though, and, and, and Bruce, you made the point, and it's important to recognize that the, the, these three Senate leaders can still defend themselves and argue that, the, that in fact, the Auditor General's got it wrong, and, and perhaps the, that is the way it turns out. But in the meantime, should they still be in their positions, or should they would step down? I think they should step down from that committee, absolutely. They shouldn't have taken over in the first place. From what I understand, they made that move after the letters had been sent out telling the senators who was on the list. So it, it just, the whole, you know, justice has to be done and seen to be done from that perspective. It just does not look good for them to be in that position at all. I also believe that they should throw this uh, report from the Auditor General to the general public now, not next week, uh, because otherwise they're going to be drop by drop spending the next four days having mm -hmm. these leaks. And if, if enough information is leaking out there, then it should all be out there. And then they can start answering those those allegations rather than hide and say, well, I can't talk about this because the report is not public. I think that's kind of hanging yourself out to dry. All right. Let's switch topics. Truth and Reconciliation Commission, its report this week. Let me start it off with this clip from uh, uh, Justice Murray Sinclair. This particular government and these particular leaders will not always be there. There will be others. And so we have approached our report from the perspective that it needs to talk to the future as well. So this becomes one of the major questions. What does, in fact, happen now? Let me, I, you know, I, I talked to somebody who's followed this issue uh, for more than 40 years, the ins and outs of the different uh, stories along this line of the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians and the different reports that have come out. Let me just show you two quotes that he gave me this week. Politically, calculating this story uh, politically and whether or not things are going to move forward. No political upside for supporting, no political downside for ignoring. That has been the norm over the years. Does it still continue to be the situation, Bruce? I, I, I'm not sure that it does. Probably if I looked just at the polls six months ago, as opposed to the ones that we see today, I might have said, sadly, that's true. But the polls that I see today show a three-party race, uh, which means that a lot of voters are looking at the idea of change. And, of course, two of the parties are, are saying that they'd like to do more on these issues, um, and one of them is, is more tentative, let me put it that way, about the Conservatives. Um, I do also think this is really important work. It's important even if this kind of story has been told before. This work is, is voluminous in its detail and it's shameful in, the, in what it describes about what happened in Canada. But it's important because there are younger generations of voters who might not have heard these stories, who might not have known what was done. And I think it's quite telling that we're having a debate on the one hand between people who want to take issue with the term cultural genocide and others who might just read some of these stories and say, I don't care what you call it, but we should do something about it. 
Chantal? I think this old debate over the word reconciliation, uh, is it cultural genocide, is it forced assimilation, is kind of besides the point because the issue isn't how we phrase it in the history books, the issue is how we move forward mm -hmm. and it distracts from the reality that uh, all these nice things that we saw this week, the ceremonies, etc., they all have a place, but we've seen them before. I was there when the Dussault Erasmus Commission reported 4,000 pages, 400 recommendations, a 20-year plan. As far as I can tell, 20 wasted years. Uh, and, and so it's not a matter of what the political cost is. Uh, the question is, do we still have leaders who have political will to address challenges? And if they don't have it for this, they also happen not to have it for climate change and all of the other issues that are facing this country and that increasingly end up in, you know, what we would call high mass in, in Catholic Quebec. And then you go back home and you have a nice dinner and you move on to something else. So I, I am not convinced that the way the discussion has started, this discussion over words, is the way to go to action. I don't think it's purely been a matter of that cynical calculus that you laid out mm -hmm. there. I mean, I'm sure that's part of it. But I think it's also the nature of the problem here. This is both a, a breaking point and, and a continuity. It's a breaking point, I think, in the sense of the shock of awareness to the broader public of just how bad the problem is, how much the government of Canada and the larger society is culpable and responsible for it. Uh, I don't think anybody, I don't think the broader public had, the, had quite the sense of that this was far beyond just a few bad apples in the residential schools behaving terribly. It was the whole project itself was misbegotten and racist. So that is a, a moment for people that that's definitely something's changed there. That doesn't alter some of the intractable problems going forward in terms of making life better for the native people. That, a lot of that still remains. A lot of the debates are still stuck in the mud in, in some, I think, old types of thinking that we need to move beyond, and I'm not sure we're, that this is going to help in that regard. There's a lot of divisions within the native leadership. That's obviously going to still, we saw that, for example, with the, uh, the changes to the education funding that the, the present government brought forward. So uh, I think there's some merit, frankly, for the, for, in the prime minister's case in particular, of not raising expectations too rapidly out of this. I, I don't think we want to have another huge you know, emotional high where everyone thinks enormous things are going to happen overnight and then crushing disappointment when they don't happen. It doesn't mean you don't act. It doesn't mean you don't try to make things better. But managing expectations is part of politics. But I think said at that, this point, what is, what, what is expected is not action tomorrow that will result in a miracle the day after, but something of a Marshall plan to address it. Not where you say we're just going to keep on progressing slowly because, A, that doesn't respond to it, and B, I don't think it produces results. I, I've read that report from 20 years ago and this one. I'm not seeing that outcomes have improved in any way, shape, or form to incrementalism. We've been heading, I think, on major economic development projects to an inflection point where it's going to be more important and more urgent than ever, if it's not already. Uh, for Aboriginal communities to agree with the rest of society on how these projects should proceed. So I do think there is something that's quite unique around the moment that, that we're at right now. And it's important for the Conservatives because uh, so much of their economic agenda has been geared to the idea that we should have development, including in rural areas, including around resources. And so I don't think they can afford to take the risk of looking like they're not going to take any action on this. Although I agree, it's hard to know exactly what they can do. I want to show you a moment from Justice Sinclair's 
um, announcement on Tuesday when he read through the recommendations uh, of the report. And it's one moment that you wonder whether or not the government is going to be defined by. It wasn't about residential schools. It was about uh, the murdered and missing uh, Indigenous women and girls. And this is what happened. Watch this. We believe that not all that needs to be known is known about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in this country. We therefore call for the establishment of a national inquiry to look into that question. Now, it's a powerful image, obviously, everybody in the room standing, um, except the minister responsible uh, for Aboriginal affairs in uh, Bernard Valcourt, who kind of is trapped by his government's position on the inquiry into murdering, murdered and missing Indigenous women and children and girls. Um, and we all remember the Prime Minister's remark in the Christmas interview about it's not on my radar. But that image is powerful. It's being played over and over again a lot of different places. Uh, does the government run the risk of that image being its response to this report? It runs the risk if that's the only response. Yeah, I mean, he was in that room trapped. They, he couldn't stand up and applaud if that's going against government policy on that. It's a defensible policy. They've made the defenses. I happen to agree with it. Uh, so, yeah, they, if, if, they, if they just remain inert, they can allow that image to be uh, the defining image. It will be the defining image, I think, for people who are already thinking a certain way. I'm not sure that changes a lot of minds about the issue and about the government. But for those who already think the government are terrible on this, they'll be confirmed in that belief. Bruce, last one. Ultimately, it's a question of empathy. Um, that image suggests a lack of empathy, although I agree that the minister couldn't really do anything else. He was stuck in an extraordinarily awkward situation. But going forward, the government has to match policy thinking and ideas about how to move forward on the on the solutions with a degree of empathy that the public sees as being consistent with the need in this situation. Can we agree that the body language of the government this week was under uh, the level of what they would have needed to erase that image big time and that that image probably erased a lot of the goodwill that the Prime Minister built with the apology a few years ago? All right. We'll leave it at that. Thank you all.